Hello. Hello, Joe. Hello, Craig. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I thought I'd uh, greet you with some music that seemed relevant to the topic concerned. Oh? Yeah. It's not time to make a change. Just relax and take it easy. You're still young. That's your fault. There's so much you have to know. Find a girl, settle down. If you want, you can marry. Look at me. I am old, but I'm happy. You can. I'm sure we can put use of to that in the episode somewhere. Probably, <laughs> probably not. I think you should just carry on. Keep going. I'll do the whole song. <laughs> yeah, I was enjoying that. No one was enjoying that, Joe, myself included. <laughs> I think it should be a regular thing that you sing in episodes. I don't want to sing to you every week, Joe. That just rumours would start. <laughs> every other episode. That would be fine. That would be the appropriate amount of singing to a male friend, I believe. All right. Have we started then? This is it. Possibly. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the editing can position this chat in the correct location. Let's do an intro. I'm Ben Maddox from Five Games for Doomsday, and I choo-choo-choose the train rush for all of my train game news and reviews. All aboard! Welcome to the Train Rush, your ad hoc topic-based podcast that's got very bad introductions. It was really three times better than I thought it would be. Brought to you today by Craig Taylor and David Hockney. So, and Joe, and Joe Reese and Joe Reese. We two boys together clinging. 1961. That's me. That's Joe. I'm running it hot on the basis that we've already had a little bit of fun going into it, so why not? Let's just start chatting. We played a few Cube Rail games over the preceding weeks, or you could argue we played one Cube Rail game over the preceding weeks and it gave us pause for thought or cause for thought i'm not sure what the correct phrase is there i think it's pause for thought pause for thought pause for thought and spelled that... p-a-w-s yeah yeah p-a-w-s cats cats think a lot clearly and i'll tell you what joe why don't you stop my rambling you can be the young man who's more direct in our cat stevens tribute and you can explain to the audience what the hell's going on ah that's the link cat and the pause. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, oh, my word. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have to start this episode with that song now. I, I guess this is an episode where we'll be asking a lot of big questions. Some big questions we could have just asked the designers themselves, but chose not to. Instead, I guess we're going to come up with the answers, and those will be the definitive answers. Whether the designers like it or not. I guess, for me, I see it as being one big question that will probably give birth to a bunch of slightly smaller questions, but still pretty big. Yeah, and I imagine some of the questions might not have definitive answers. But I quite like the idea at the end of this episode, we're just going to come up with some definitive answers anyway. Yep, sure. That sounds good to me. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to call those, uh, whether that ball's in play or not, and John McEnroe can live with it. Craig, have you ever seen the um, BBC programme? I think it was Sunday mornings called The Big Questions. No, I haven't. Well, on the big questions, they get an audience of about 200 people who are representative of the entire British population across a full range of demographics and ask them, Craig, some very big questions. Big moral and ethical questions like, will capitalism save the planet? Is what you do more important than what you believe? And are point-to-point train games superior to games with hexes? But tonight, on today's show, it's just us. Just us. 
representing the whole of the UK. I'm more of a pointless man myself. Ah. So expect me to take that kind of angle. I was hoping you could be my comedic researcher who actually knows what he's talking about, whereas I can be the charming chap with slightly less hair. <laughs> I forget his name. Armstrong. That's the one. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. Anyway, lots of British references that no one will care about. I guess the big question is, should American rails exist? Oof. Oof. Now, I think within this discussion, we can talk about other games as well. But I quite like that being the title. Like, director Tim Harrison, the designer, should your game exist? Should American Rails exist? Well, that's the red top, punchy headline, and it actually covers the full commute of what does a title need to do to deserve, inverted commas, and we can unpack that word as well, to deserve to exist. So, story being that we played American Rails the other day for fun, inverted commas, with no intention of having a post-game discussion because it was for fun, inverted commas. Yet, at the end of the game, because we couldn't help ourselves, there was a post-game discussion. And I fielded the question, what did that do for you intellectually that Chicago Express doesn't? The core kind of grist of the mental exercise, what did that do for you that Chicago Express, the progenitor game, doesn't do? That then led to a little bit more research where we decided to play other games of the ilk, so to speak, maybe with different authors or designers or whatever the correct term is, I don't know, I'm new to this board game malarkey, and discuss our views that you really shouldn't care about. I barely care about them. I'm just here to talk. I think it poses a nice philosophical question, doesn't it? It does. And if nothing else, it gives me a lens through which I make a decision as to whether I'm going to bother with a game beyond the first play. So it's a bit like Room 101, in which for every game that comes along, Cray, you are going to decide whether it stays or whether you lock it up in a tortured dungeon never to be seen or heard from ever again on the basis of one play because i'm a board game reviewer apparently (laughs) therefore one play is enough to make that decision or something Mm. so should american rails exist we will come back to that question and we will answer it and then that will be that will be it for everybody okay so let's just briefly talk about what this game does then American Rails essentially takes the Chicago Express share payout and share valuation system, the company capitalization system, and puts it into a game where the action selection is slightly different. Well, it's significantly different, but ultimately you've got similar classes of actions and they are rationed, if you will, by collective player actions. It's just slightly different in the sense that you've got some blocking instead of countdown dials and you have variable start positions, more to point player controlled start positions for the companies that ostensibly will be different every game. I have my suspicions that actually maybe there'll be patterns. It'll devolve down to repeating patterns of similar start positions. I could be wrong. Above, below, beyond that, it's Chicago Express. Am I massively wrong there? No, I think that's a pretty good summary. And along with the financial mechanisms, another similarity between Chicago Express and American Rails is that they both operate on a hex grid, allowing railroads to share locations depending on the terrain, albeit with an 
additional cost. As for American Rails, there's seemingly more variability in terms of that company's start position, and there are a few minor rules tweaks such as different connection bonus, slightly simpler development rules, and the addition of income reduction. Yes. A second company comes into your hex, then it reduces the income for the first company that got there. I guess they're dividing the wealth of that city now between two lines. That's a very good point. I did forget that. I don't want to say it's forgettable. I'd seen it before in Kansas Pacific. I'm not going to say which one wore its best, but didn't really click because it was kind of a mechanic I'd seen before. And unlike in Chicago Express, there isn't the surprise pop-up company that may or may not open, depending on the player-defined trigger in the case of Chicago Express, a railroad reaching Chicago, which feels like an oddity and gives the game character, I think. It's an incentive and a potential trap, and this is just removed in American Rails. So here's the thing. I spent 95% of my cognitive effort during our game of American Rails thinking about the Chicago Express bits and the action selection, if anything, was simplified versus Chicago Express because it was very much a simple trade-off of power of action, ostensibly, versus priority into the next round. I find that to be a narrower decision space than the whole ration of actions. Felt like there was a lot more player agency and possibilities with the Chicago Express implementation. You have a column of actions in American Rails and there are three turns of which you have to pick one action from that column and if that action has been taken from that column you must pick another which then determines the turn order for the next action you'll take. You do three of those and then it's the end of the round where dividends are paid. Whereas Chicago Express is, like you said, it's a bit more dynamic. You have the possibility of having three auctions in a row or everyone rail building. So the beat of the game is completely player controlled. Mm. Whereas in American Rails, there's far more structure binding it together and it's far more restrictive. I can see some players actually preferring that narrowing of options. If they find Chicago Express almost too broad, then maybe having the, oh, actually, I don't even need to think about those two actions because they've been taken in front of me, you know, could help steer their play, for want of a better term. But that feels like something that you might potentially outgrow. Like, once you are familiar with Chicago Express, are you going to want those buffers? The whole decision about which action are you taking is you're weighing up the preceding action, the following action, in terms of you are also marking your priority for the next turn. I found that to be a slimmer decision space overall because the effects of your choice are limited really to what's happening in that next turn rather than the entire round as a whole. It encourages tactical thought. You're thinking one turn ahead, I feel, largely. I think it also simplifies the priority in terms of who will be last of that round and who is going to be first the next round. In Chicago Express, there's a lot of play around when will this round come to an end. And the round ending means that, say, for instance, the auction could be back up again and you can be the first to pick a share that goes up for auction or you may wish to develop something. So, yeah, I get it. It's got that player-controlled timing of the clock. I find it far more fascinating, that decision space. Will I choose a development action so it kind of knocks off the kilter of the round and who is potentially going to go first next time or who's going to be able to you know finish that round or are we going to drag this out a little bit longer it's just far more dynamic 
and far more interesting, I think, especially as players get more and more experienced controlling the pace of the game. The interplay between the relationships that you form between the shares and your investments is also played into the actions you take and how that times together in terms of alliances, mini alliances for one round, and how that just broadens the decision space enormously, really. Well, I think we're landing on the side of the adjustments, the action selection is simpler, but potentially tighter in terms of decision space. What about having the players control the start position for the companies? Is that an improvement over Chicago Express? I think probably the design decision to go that way is to open up a sense of variability from the very beginning of the game. There aren't these fixed company positions. You could potentially go anywhere on this map, and it's quite a large map. I think it's it's bigger than the Chicago Express map. And it does give you some flexibility and does get you thinking about all the companies have different numbers of shares and different numbers of locomotives so they can reach and expand at differing rates. How does that interplay with that map and all the possible locations? And that that sounds really exciting, but I think I've more of a preference to fixed positions to begin, where the outcomes of your decisions cause the variability. And because they're fixed, and because you're starting the game in exactly the same point every single time, that actually you are able to explore the depth of the system at a far... I know where you're going with this. Yeah. I know where you're going with this, totally. Yeah, it makes sense. In so much as if it's got fixed starting positions, the players can all get better at the game rather than having a bunch of full starts where a player may start something in a wild location that makes no sense just to see if it works. You don't have any of that. The companies all start where that should start and you're making your valuation exercises and your decisions in play on the basis of knowing where they start as opposed to trying to do something weird and wonderful. Saying that, the, the maps are different, and so are the quality of decisions that unfold from them. The game of American Rails would not work on the Chicago Express map, and vice versa. It feels as if American Rails is designed to be more like that blank canvas, where players must think carefully about their positions of their railways in relation to the revenue centres and how they can use their bills to defend or attack the income of others, or simply avoid that prospect entirely. In Chicago Express, the routes are intentionally designed to drive westwards into cramped competition in an attempt to burst through those mountains, where players must leap upon the right shares to use their lines like garrots. You need those fixed positions in Chicago Express. You can learn through the outcomes of the system that starts in the same position, and you can learn from those lessons with each play without it being clouded by variable input. Does that make sense? Is that yeah. Does that sound like a fancy way of saying what you just said? Yeah, no, it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. Like I say, I, I like it. I'm your uh, gentleman farmer friend to your Stephen Fry. It's all good. The common man will know what we mean through my language and the academics will regale you in the lecture halls of Oxford University. I digress. I digress. I doubt they will. I can't even tell you in Oxford College I was going to try and add colour to that, but there you go. Imagine that one day I might fulfil my true potential and they'll be inviting me up, they'll give me one of those degrees, you know, where they just give them away for free without you having to do any of the work. Maybe one day they'll do that, they'll recognise my academic strengths in the 
the train gaming world. Oh, my word. Gosh. Well, we need to win a Golden Geek first, heavens, before you get free university degrees from Oxford. My gosh, lofty goals. <laughs> you see, I think I've struggled to articulate why I am quite so cold on American rails. And I think for me, it's because the core loop is all but identical. The core thing my brain is doing, which is working out the capital going into the company, the return on investment of the shares, and work thereabouts is identical. The action selection, although different, is trivially different. It doesn't change the core flow. The way the shares are put up is the same in all but the way you trigger the action. The actors who put the shares up are the same. They can be put up by anybody. The point of putting a share up to capitalise the company and the cost of the doing so, the type of dilution, is identical. So the game lives there and changing the action selection mechanism is merely a dash of salt on the thing. Yeah, I think I agree. But I, I don't think it's merely adding salt. I think it's actually removing what I really enjoy in Chicago Express through those changes. Okay, I think we've talked about the qualities of it. So let's talk to something, I guess, bigger. Is this a Dick Turpin job? Remind me who Dick Turpin is again, Craig. Oh my word, you're going to be the educated one. Dick Turpin is the eponymous highwayman oh, of, of, of law who used to rob people. I asked that question, obviously, so that our audience can get up to speed. Just like Dick Turpin riding away with his ill-gotten gains, our audience are now up to speed on the back of the horse of your idiocy. Oh man, another moment of embarrassment. <laughs> Uh, always, always recorded and laid down for the whole of history to hear. Indeed. After I get my degree. <laughs> oh my God. So no, I put it crassly to try and get a shock response and the response I got was who's Dick Turpin. <laughs> so I guess we got something out of this. Is it a stolen design? Why not? I mean, is there something intrinsically wrong with something that builds off the back of someone else's work? So brazenly, is this just the nature of game design? After all, we have no copyright rules for game mechanics. You could argue that game mechanics are kind of open sourced in that sense. So collaboration, although this isn't a collaboration in the strictest sense, iteration, building off the back of others' intellectual graft, so to speak, is encouraged by the very systems that regulate board game design. Is that okay, though, philosophically? Is this any less worthy on the basis of that it uses so much of Chicago Express as its own thing? Because it's smooth, it works. I don't want to be overly harsh. Yes, we've talked about some things that we don't like about it versus Chicago Express, but that's like saying, oh, I don't like this about a Whataburger. I'm using the American reference here to bring them back in, Joe. Because my favourite's Five Guys. You know, well, they're still both great burgers, right? And they're both ultimately hamburgers, and I like hamburgers. So, you know, I'm damning it. But, you know, it's a pretty high bar to which I'm comparing it. Qualifiers made. Is this worthy? Is this a thing worth talking about? Shall I start? Because I feel like I've asked a horrible loaded question. No, it's okay. I can throw out some more questions if you like. I guess it comes down to two things which I was thinking about is the ownership of ideas and also design tradition, but also the motives of the designer themselves as well. And their experience. I think there's context there that we shouldn't forget. You may accept a behaviour from a novice designer more so than you might from someone who already clearly knows how to design games, inverted commas, demonstrated by their wealth of experience or published experience. I think there's other things as well. I think there's a whole conversation about why do we value originality. Go ahead, Joe. Do I start with the designer or are we talking about ideas in general? It's quite, I mean, it's a chicken and egg, isn't it? Let's start with one and the other will pop out. (laughs) So I was thinking about this. Why does anyone want to create anything? 
And I think it just comes down to the fact that all we want to do is reproduce. Deep within us, we are trying to prolong the existence of our own DNA. Did you get around to reading The Selfish Gene, like I suggested? No, no, no. This is fortuitously coincidental. I think you may be covering some similar ground (laughs) um, if you've already read that book. Carry on, Joe. I haven't read it, so this is all unique thoughts. I have not stolen anything from Mr Dawkins. All right, Dick, carry on. Anyway, out of that comes understanding and controlling your environment because you want to survive so that you're able to live as long as possible and allow your family's DNA to be passed on. So what the hell has this got to do with designing games? This all kind of ties into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes, at the top of it is train games, isn't it? It is, yeah. Dutch intercity and wooden shoes and iron monsters. So it starts off with basic needs, and those are your physiological needs. Such as train games. (laughs) Yeah, food, water, warmth, rest, and train games. It then goes up to safety needs, your security and safety, and then belongingness, and then esteem, feeling a sense of accomplishment. And then up at the top, you've got your self-actualization. You've met your basic and your psychological needs, and now you want to achieve one's own full potential. It's the inner desire to seek reproduction of the mind also to make solid your ideas and to communicate those ideas or those emotions and allow them also to live on in perpetuity. And I think what it comes down to is you're trying to understand and control your environment because you want to survive longer, but you're also understanding your own and other mental spaces, controlling and cooperating with others through communication. I think an artist or a designer or a creator gets to a point where they want to express themselves or make solid their thoughts, of which comes art and design and communicating through those. And that communication has another effect because you communicate an idea and then maybe the other people around you are also thinking of your ideas and that makes you inherently more safe and It also inherently makes you more attractive in some ways if you have created something which is awe-inspiring. And so that runs into this cyclical nature of creation and reproduction. And that is why I think designers design games. Craig, there's nothing more the board gaming community loves, I think. Great universal proclamations without any links to any sources. Any of what I've said stand up in terms of kind of sciencey academic train game theory. So some of this stuff was actually covered by my undergraduate reading for my human biology degree. That desire to recreate oneself is programmed into us to the point where you can actually model it into things like altruism, where you can obviously it makes sense for parents to sacrifice themselves to ensure that their children survive. But you even see cases of this where in wider family units like aunts and uncles and whatnot will sacrifice themselves to make sure that part of their genetics survives. And it even goes beyond that to kind of like the tribal level unit. The The thing about your ideas being propagated is more of a culture and society thing and it is covered in footnotes stroke the final chapters of that book with kind of just some exploratory writing around mimetic engrams i believe memes in the truest sense ideas being propagated between brains as opposed to you know edgy internet 
stuff that I know you love. <laughs> I think it's quite interesting because, like I said, I haven't actually sourced any of those those ideas. But I guess as you go through life, you are picking up information. And you're kind of moulding it into your own ideas, which is really interesting because sometimes can't trace the origin of your own thoughts sometimes, where obviously you have been influenced by TV and reading and on train game podcasts. Or reading Jamie Stegmaier's blog. Yes, yeah, yeah, a very interesting academic um, tome, as it is. Um, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I, li- I, I, like the Id- I like the idea that if we were like, Radio Lab or some other kind of reputable podcast, This American Life or something, we would have brought on a guest who knows what they're talking about. But to be honest, Joe, most of these ideas you learn in secondary school, right? Or as our American cohort might say, high school. Yeehaw! Oh my God. Do you think they say yeehaw? I think they say yeehaw. They do. They do for, for every state, I think, across yeah. the whole continent a little bit inside information for you when i record with mark it's very different to the post edit and my understanding is 60 percent of his editing booth time is him removing his own yeehaws <laughs> i i think next episode mark leave the gaming moguls as is raw yeehaw complete <laughs> I, I think all your listeners would really enjoy that <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> what? Carry on. Yeah. Anyway, I I did I did do a bit a brief bit of googling just to check myself and what the heck I was meant to be talking about. It was George Price who apparently takes credit for the equation of evolution by natural selection and the altruism altruism bit. Can I even say that word? So I just stick a yeehaw in it. It's a bit of filler. Yeehaw. So we've we've looked at vaguely looked at maybe the subconscious desires of people in general and maybe this explains the designer's drive to design a game by hook or by crook lest they be wiped from existence forgotten to the annals of time but can we speculate the conscious desires of tim harrison Maybe you like a core pillar of a game, but something on the edge, say the action selection mechanism in this case, doesn't land with your group. So you make a variant and you think it stands up well enough that others might appreciate it. Maybe you've got a longer view to designing more games and you not only want to learn about the game design process, but also the publishing process and how to get deals and whatnot. So doing something simpler and smaller in scope may be appealing versus something large and sprawling i think probably the more likely scenario there that it's a love letter to a game that he enjoys that's fine yeah i could totally get that so when people make maps for age of steam or why do people make maps for irish gauge Mm -hmm. you know just plug in the the tracks magazine people do it because they like the original thing and they want more of it yeah and i guess also maybe communicate what they believe are improvements subconscious communication to the original author or to the community at large. I guess some people desperately want to design a game, and is that for very serious gamers the apex of this thing? I'm really creative, I'm good at developing games and spotting patterns in games and flaws in games. Maybe I should make a game. What's the quickest way to make a game, and the quickest way to draw a rabbit is to trace a rabbit, I guess. I just, but I just don't think it's as conscious as that. I really don't. I just don't want to assume bad faith or poor motives on behalf of people designing these games, because it takes effort and it's not without cost even if you just look at the time cost alone Mm -hmm. 
I mean, just a little personal story. I've had a couple of opportunities, invitations to design maps for various things or to work with someone to design a game. And I've just found the entire prospect very, very intimidating because I set that thing of, oh God, I don't want to do it unless it meaningfully moves something forward or unless the idea is original, unless the idea is mine. So for me, it works the other way. Mm. So I can see the actual prospect of a gentler on-ramp working to refine something that already exists being very appealing. Like I do it in other parts of my life when I'm doing graphic design work or if I'm doing scripting work, I'll work on the basis of nuggets and chunks that... That that sounds a bit grim. Um, (laughs) Chunks of script and nuggets of code that other people have already put together and I'll work around it to make it mine. So I don't really see how that... This mentality is that different. I'll tell you about one of my own personal artistic struggles. Is it this podcast? No, no, it's something far more important. I've been putting googly eyes on my priority deal markets, okay? Now, this idea is not original. I was on the uh, the Facebook train game, oh, whatever the name is of that group. I know the name. It's John Kant's Big Group of Fun. Yeah, that, that is what it's called, if anyone's searching for it on Facebook. And there is someone on there who posted these pictures of the, the googly eye priority deal markers and I just thought oh that is such a good idea and then I just thought well I think I'm just gonna stick googly eyes on mine as well and I think they look a bit better because they've got larger googly eyes the originals had slightly smaller googly eyes (laughs) but I felt kind of a bit awkward doing it because I felt like oh man this is this is me stealing someone else's idea 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 I I I yeah but then at the same time, I know that people put googly eyes on their reef encounter lobster things, whatever they are. What are they? Prawns, lobsters, something in there. Crustaceans, just just go broad. So there is like a tradition of putting googly eyes on little wooden creatures. And also, I wasn't the one who designed the shape of this wooden component either. And you didn't chop down the tree, and you didn't make the paint from base pigments. Where do you want to stop, Joe? Personally, I'd have put little willies on them. Then it would have been your idea, Joe. (laughs) It kind of ties into a point I wanted to make about why we value originality. Mm -hmm. So there were some studies on art, of all things. Participants were asked to value two paintings of a bridge. Both of them were originals, but they were told that one of them was an original and the other one was painted by a different person, but by coincidence. And in that case, the paintings were valued very evenly. Another group of participants were told that one was painted as a pastiche or inspired by the first painting. And in that instance, the one that was considered a copy was valued much lower. Mm. So there seems to be an innate perception that with art, it's the originality of the performance that created it that we value as much as the actual technical implementation. Because both those paintings that the subjects were seeing were equivalently accomplished. They were painted by the same man. The point I'm making is people value them differently on the basis that one was an original creative expression and the other one was merely someone riffing off their ideas. Mm. Now, they applied the same ideas to other artefacts like furniture and it didn't affect the valuations at all. Where does a game sit, really? If I had an empty plot of land and I needed to build a house, then I'll probably just build the house that I can see next to my plot of land because I've got some kind of foundation to work on. I, you know, it functions, it stands up. If I was going to write a novel, can I just take someone's novel and rewrite chapter two and maybe the ending, maybe change the characters' names? Well, you're describing my dissertation there, but... Am I? 
I'm joking. <laughs> so where does a game sit there? Because is it a form of art and expression? Exactly. I was just going to say, because I'm using that valuation lens of, ugh, I don't think as much of American Rails because it's built on someone else's idea. It's a pastiche or an optimization. I don't value it as much intrinsically as an artifact. And I think people that are really into board games, they do consider these things to be art of a form. They're an interactive art piece. I do wonder if, just say for argument's sake, American Rails was better along some dynamic. Let's say for argument's sake it's more accessible than Chicago Express. It's easier to learn. doesn't really matter. It's just better in some way. Would your average, I'm just getting into board game type person, you know, a new player of board games or somebody who doesn't even realise that hobbyist games are a thing and they're just buying a board game to play with their family, would they care about who originally designed it or would they just care about which one is more fit for purpose or more to point fit for their purpose yeah i think the 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 second option there does it provide the structured entertainment it promises which one do i feel i'm more able to use as an energy to fun machine to quote uh, a great artist quins of shut up sit down maybe why we're getting confused here is Effectively, you've got a mathematical model, right? And the players put in their various functions and we see how everything ends up. It is a system, an interactive system, but because it results in emotions and it fulfills an emotional need, a social need, then you're kind of steering a path between that this is a house, it functions, I can live in it, I can turn the taps on and the water comes out, and something more akin to a narrative of a novel. And that house is where I raised my kids and where I heard about my father falling ill. And is a house just a house? Of course it isn't. Is a book just a book? No. Is a game just a game? To some people, yes. Because you're having an experience with the system, you're overlaying your own emotions or your emotions are being provoked by the system, then everything gets muddy and, and confused, doesn't it? And even if you're looking at these games as mathematical models and, and you're interested in that, there's still a passion inside you to unpick that system and that model. And where does the designer sit here? Because they provided that model They've created this system, which is now an extension of themselves almost. Like it's a creation of their mind made solid, which replicates the feelings the designer feels or wanted to make people feel. And in a way, that's a communication, I guess, of how they see the world. If nothing else, it's an expression of what the designer finds fun themselves. You would hope. Yeah. Yeah. Or interesting. Yeah. I've got a question about families just picking up a game from a shelf. Is it the more we know and the deeper we get into the inner workings of these games, like the less satisfied we become? And is this train game snobbery? Are we are we snobs, Craig? Don't make me answer that. I'd have to put my champagne down. Ugh. I mean, yes. Like, do you think normal people have podcasts about things they're interested in? You are already identifying as being hyper-interested beyond reason if you spend time creating a podcast on something, right? Are we using the specific we? Are you talking about the general we here? Our audience, shall we include them? They're spending time listening to us talking about train games ostensibly. I believe they're complicit, yeah. 
Do we think that it's a like a bottom-heavy pyramid and most people engaging with games, there's tons and tons and tons of them and people who buy most of the games in the game store, they're just buying something for enjoyment and they just don't think beyond whether they enjoy it or not. They're not thinking about design elements. They just they have an emotional reaction to it. They don't know why. They're not trying to unpick why. They just buy a thing. Do they enjoy a thing? Great. They keep a thing. Otherwise, they sell it on. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom of the pyramid. And then you get further up and it's a case of, okay, why did I enjoy that thing? You're unpicking the mechanisms, the art, the elegance of the design, maybe. And that's the next level, but it narrows quite significantly. And then the next level, you're looking at the breadth of things in that space. You say, okay, how does this meaningfully move on the form? Or is it just a you know a copy of something else or is it inspired so heavily by something else but loses some of the magic by being photocopied for want of a better term Mm. and i think when you start tightening what you're looking at to be more and more for want of a better term academic you're at the top of that pyramid when you talk about a pyramid it does sound like you're saying that people are superior but really it's just a level of interest really i say pyramid but that could equally be in sales jargon a funnel you start at the top of the funnel and you work your way down through the funnel i like to imagine all of those mass market non-winsome buying scum oh sorry oh sorry sorry yeah looking up at us supreme podcast pharaohs do you not think it would be like creepier and weirder if we didn't recognize the fact that we're really into it perhaps like almost deceitful for us to pretend that our perspective isn't skewed as a result of our extreme interest craig and i live wild wild lives as you can tell we derive such enjoyment from exploring these games as far down as we possibly can but that takes time and so we have to choose the games that we can dedicate that time to i'm trying to find the x factor in the next game i'm talking about so i can talk to you joe and the audience at large excitedly about it and say this is the one where so and so you should buy this because it does this thing really well and i'm yet to see that elsewhere that's not to say it doesn't exist but it's the first time i've seen it And when you don't see that and you go, oh, actually, there's nothing new here, it's very hard for me to dress that up. And to be honest with you, if you're listening to our podcast to hear us speak, why should I dress that up? So more often than not, it's a qualified, I was disappointed in this and remember how I'm looking at this, it's through this kind of lens. I know that's similar for you, Joe. I know that's similar for you. You're incredibly academically minded, whether you care to admit it or not. Yeah, I didn't know. I definitely admit it because these kind of questions interest me. And also, when you start seeing the patterns in the games and you tie that to a particular person like being John Malkovich climb into the doorway of the designer's mind even if it's just for a moment it becomes interesting because it is a form of their thinking and then you start to see themes reoccurring themes or developments and don't you find it interesting let's say if David Hecht let's imagine he had a Twitter account and <laughs> he occasionally tweeted something don't you think you would be interested in <laughs> No. Craig loves the gossip. He's like rubbing his hands together whenever Lonnie tweets about what his neighbour's doing or whatever. <laughs> Lonnie's moaning about how the hedge hasn't been trimmed in six months or whatever. <laughs> um, I tend to look at designers less as people, sounds awful, more as almost how one looks at a wine label. I enjoy it from that vineyard. I tend not to think about the human story behind the creation of these things and more of a, oh, I like that style of game. I like a cheeky Lonnie. <laughs> oh, I'm not quite as into my Uwe, Ray, uh, that fella who does the Euros. <laughs> not into his. Um, 
you know, they're not, you get the gist. I do like imagining those designers with their feet in the grapes. I suspect that's because you consume a lot more BGG and podcasts than me, Joe, that you get to see that these people are human with little faces like they're on the side of milk cartons have been lost to the neighbourhood child snatcher. Well, I stick the googly eyes on those pictures as well. <laughs> I cut them out and <laughs> frame them and put them in my kitchen. Take the fun where you can find it, I guess. Anyway, to wrap this section up, can you name a game designer? Okay, Jamie Stegmaier. Jamie Stegmaier. Good. Well known for his train games, Craig. Yeah, it could have been anyone. It could have been Scott Peterson. Could have been Francis Tresham. Could have been. But no, it's, it's Jamie Stegmaier. I'm sticking. All right. Jamie Stegmaier. To, to really emphasize my point so that the audience can carry away my thoughts in their heads. Just imagine a prehistoric Jamie Stegmaier dressed only in his saber-toothed tiger-skin jockstrap. He's got it all worked out. He's got his shelter. A source of food. He's safe. Imagine him designing tapestry, carving his grid of noughts and crosses into the sand, or using the fresh blood of a baboon on his cave wall. All this because Jamie is motivated purely and unequivocally by the desire to make love to your mind as many times as humanly possible. I will be euphoric thinking about that, Joe. <laughs> Can I peel my skin off now, please? Hmm. <laughs> Don't do that. Jamie might slip himself into it. Dog. Oh, <laughs> that got dark quick. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> you can't leave that in. <laughs> my God. Okay. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> There's this whole concept of hedonism, which is a behaviour of seeking pleasure, and sensory seeking, which is a behaviour, a psychological behaviour, of seeking new sensations, whether they're good or bad. Negative behaviours can often be sensation seeking. Hedonism is typically associated with pleasure, so I do wonder if originality kind of ties into both of those things. We're seeking new experiences, hopefully good. Is that a product of a human tendency to be somewhat hedonistic? Is hedonism a groundstone of civilization? full stop to try and improve the lived experience of mankind as a whole. I think it probably nestles more neatly into sensation seeking. What do you think then about the fear of the unknown and people being quite conservative, not wishing to step outside of their own defined bounds, just wanting to return to something familiar? I was about to argue against that with some points about games being a reasonably safe place to explore. One tends to rely on the known and fear the unknown when there are stakes involved. I'm not going to buy those solar panels because I'm unsure as to whether I'm going to lose money on them. I don't trust them yet and they cost $10,000 or whatever. But I've seen that kind of behaviour or mentality in gaming circles too, where you have players that are predisposed to playing the same titles over and over. Now, you could argue that's a journey of mastery thing, or trying to seek the depth, and it's actually a positive behaviour. 
I'm not going to say it's a bad thing strictly, but there is something about just falling into a game you know, the ease of dropping into it without having to suffer a teach, knowing you're going to play it correctly. I think there's also an anxiety about looking stupid in front of your friends, not picking up something quickly. I wonder if this is a similar anxiety a designer may feel. If you can rest your design upon the the structure of a game that works, you're not going to be a massive failure. Yeah. The math's already done. All you're doing is tweaking it somewhat. And how bad can you ruin this thing with a tweak? Terribly, Joe. Terribly. <laughs> it's not that bad. I'm being facetious. I'm being facetious. That was a bit of rumination I've had on the topic. Mostly derivative of other people's notes. <laughs> Have we answered this question yet? Who owns these ideas? I don't know. You've got Roland Barthes of Death of the Author fame wrote an essay, the argument being that writing and creator are unrelated. What what do you think of that, Craig? Are they unrelated or are they forever tied because it is a physical manifestation of their thoughts and desires and everything they've put into this game, their time? The actual laws around this stuff don't protect the ideas. So on that basis, in terms of what you can do legally, the work is coupled to the author, but not tightly, because other people can just as legitimately put something else out, change some verbiage, change some presentation, maybe change the odd rule here or there, and it's legitimately theirs to publish. But that's not how people react to it in the wild, is it? When Francis Tresham died, people were talking about him being the forefather, the person who gave birth to 18xx, and rightly so. When Martin Wallace and John Bohr are arguing over Age of Steam, it does feel like they're arguing over something which matters, and they care who gets the credit and why they get the credit. When communities wade in on either side saying who they think's right. When we played American Rails, and our initial reaction, legitimately at the end, was, well, why would I play this above Chicago Express, you know, and as such, is this thing worthy? It feels like the community reaction and the human response to this thing is more akin to art. Yes, sure, a trace of a drawing is legitimate and okay, but it's not as nice as an original. It feels that's more in keeping. So I think whether legally the artist and the work are entities that float around each other with no coupling, I think in actual community-policed behaviours taboos and all those sort of things you've got to say they're linked right surely just going back to what i was saying about maslow's hierarchy of needs is that there are esteem needs that feeling of accomplishment so if your name is suddenly taken off a box or there's this argument about ownership of those ideas yeah these are personal creations aren't they but how about age of steam maps why is there an inconsistency in our enjoyment for those? Because we don't think twice when playing Age of Steam. Is it because there's this tradition of many designers now? Is it because the designers of the maps don't claim the game as their own? Is there a few elements here? Is there the you know is there enough depth there to warrant lots of different maps or you know additions to the system? Is there like you say that intellectual honesty of I am bolting this thing off the back? It's a variant. I'm not claiming this as my own in any way shape or form bar this map you know i'm not taking ownership of the scaffolding this is strictly a coat of wallpaper i believe you you apply wallpaper in coats and a layer of carpet there you go you do lay carpet it can also be it's a modifier on something you already know it's a system game right there's no expectation that you're going to look at these rules in isolation it ties into that point we made earlier about the comforting blanket of playing something you already know when you play an age of steam map you already know most of it the rules if they're any cop will explicitly say it's like the base thing except this bit there's a very quick on-ramp for that 
American Rails, and I keep using that as the reference, but it's the it's the reference for the podcast. Uh, also, I'm getting paid five cents per time I say it. So, uh, no, the with American Rails. Sorry, sorry, I, I fluffed that take. With American Rails, that's a third time, fifteen cents. Um, you do have to read the rules fully because you, you know, as a player of the game, you can't assume it's just Chicago Express, and it's only after you've played the thing and you know the thing, you can deliver the teach that way as a first-generation consumer of American Rails. But the origin of game ideas can become distanced or lost from their original creator over a period of time into something that could be called design tradition, with many hands building upon a concept. If we have a look at let's say, trick-taking as a mechanism. You know, card games have been played for centuries. Now, the originator of that original mechanism, who is that? And does it matter? It's some German, isn't it? I believe trick-taking originated in Germany. I could be wrong. But it's been such a long period that it's just become a core to their design tradition. The designers or artists are putting their own spin on this simple foundation. Now, is it a matter of time that counts? It's just happened over such a long period that now we don't care so much about that originator and there is no riding on someone else's coattails. It's about what can you do with this idea and push it in different directions. Do we need to give credit to all your design inspirations? Or is there something about a single mechanism in a game, be it laying cards on a table, that is less precious than transplanting a number of different elements that have already been arranged into a greater idea? Do you remember when Dominion was released? I knew enough that Dominion was the first deck builder. Donald X, Vassarino, you know, he bought it out and then he designed a much better game called Greed, but we'll talk about that another time. And then it was copied and people said, oh, it's just a copy of, it's just a copy of uh, Dominion. And now people don't even think of Dominion when you have a game with a deck building mechanism. You know, I remember more recently that Clank was released and that combines deck building with map play and some other stuff. Tramways might be a good example of looking at train games there. Or actually, trains also. I prefer Clank because trains go Clank, Joe. The point I'm making about Clank is no one was doing the whole Oh my god, Donald X Vassarino, get your lawyers! This is disgusting, this is such a rip-off. It was just, oh yeah, it's a cool deck building game. It's weird how short that statute of limitations seems to be. So 12 years later, no one cares. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Donald. No one cares. I'm still... I'm going to pour one out for you, homeboy. What do you mean by that? I'm going to pour beer <laughs> onto my lawn in honour of Donald X being forgotten. Oh, pour one out. I thought you said pull one out. <laughs> no! Jesus Christ, no. No, no. Pour one out. Like, you know, like, that's, that's what you do. That's what you do. That's what for, you do for Dominion and Donald. For the recently deceased. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Look, to answer your question seriously, I think integrating different mechanisms is actually a skill and an art in of itself, right? It's not it's a non-trivial thing making these mechanisms marry together, especially if you haven't seen them in a form before where they're integrated. That's that squeaky chair you were moaning about last time we did editing. Sorry, Joe. I'm imagining you sitting in your rocking chair with a pipe thinking through all of these uh, philosophical questions. My plastic rocking chair. 
Just going back to the death of the author, maybe once the games are published and released to the world, they're now in our hands to experience in our own way. And they're also in the hands of future designers too, for them to play with and alter as they see fit. Maybe. If we look at a more recent game, Lose on Rails by Robin David, he credits the games rather than the authors involved. He mentions a few inspirations, Chicago Express, Paris Connection, Irish Gage, and calls it the Cube Rail tradition. What do you think about that? I think, I guess there's a few lenses to this, right? Is the originator known? Is the originator alive? If they're alive, what are their feelings on derivative designs? Is it a case of when something's beyond living memory, it no longer matters? Think about arguments has been over giving Francis Tresham credit in rule books. If you think about how Francis wanted to be credited, you know, he wanted a copy of the game if you want to use the 18xx system badge on the front, that kind of thing. We have that tradition of design inside the train game community, right? Where you have somebody who is happy that their idea have been born life beyond their ability or bandwidth to produce designs. But there's also the idea of development as well. Who designed 1830? Was it Francis Tresham? How much went on in Avalon Hill. Well, luckily there's great articles on that from, I think it's The General, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's available in the PDF online where you can read to see just how much work Avalon Hill Mm -hmm. put in to said design. Yeah, so you've got core concepts and you've got development of those core concepts. Is it forgivable to not credit Tresham when actually your inspiration might be hundreds of designers? Well, I don't know. How many designers have there been? Uh, well, let's say hundreds of designers and developers and playtesters. Yeah. There's been hundreds of people involved in the, the development and design of 18xx titles mm-hmm. collectively. So if you create a game that works on the very simple system, doesn't have a huge amount of flourishes or chrome, then you're still working off the back of every other 18xx game you've played that has that chrome or it doesn't is your inspiration 1830 or is it every game you have played by different authors coming together and then you're choosing your own you're hand selecting aren't you what you want in your own creation your own distillation of those ideas I think you have to be honest with yourself and thereby honest with your audience in the author's notes okay if you had only played 1846 and some 1830 derivatives and you hadn't actually played 1830. It wouldn't be necessary to credit Francis and to thank him for his work with 1830 if you were unaware of it, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're aware of it and you have played 1830 as a primitive and it's been an input in your design, I think, yeah, I'd credit him. I think really in the grand scheme of things that comes under the bucket of personal decisions. If there is a victim it's very small and arguably there's no victim at all. So I'm certainly not going to damn someone as being irreprehensible for failing to do so. Tim Harrison who designed American Rails openly credits John Borer as his inspiration. So you know right out of the gate he was saying I came up with these ideas or I wanted to put these ideas in this form and that couldn't have been done without John Borer. I was about to say that you've kind of softened my view on the moral crime of American Rails, the perceived moral failings of something that riffs so closely, even prior to mentioning the credit piece. Mm. But I still don't think that affects how I value it. I've got limited time in my life, as do we all. I already know how to play Chicago Express. I'm already building up a knowledge and a practice skill at playing Chicago Express. 
what is American Rails doing to earn its place at the table? And I'm sorry, I just can't divorce that feeling of this is a copy sitting nestled in the back of my mind. And I say copy, you know what I mean, a pastiche, a variant, an inspired by, whatever word you care to use. Like I said, it's no massive outrage, but I can't help the fact that Chicago Express being an original design has me valuing it more, even if I can't put my finger on precisely why. How do you feel comparing 18 Chesapeake with 1889 or 1836 Junior? At that stage, we're comparing photocopies of something to photocopies of something, aren't we? Why, why is your ire so great, so great for this cube rail derivative, whereas that maybe that feeling is maybe more diluted for 18xx? I love the fact you use diluted because it goes into the metaphor I was going to use for this. So I think it's because American Rails feels like a first generation copy of something. Chicago Express exists. I'm going to use part of that and make American Rails. Gosh, my skin blanches and I am shocked. (laughs) Whereas the 18xx piece, we're already about four generations down in terms of designs, if not more. Mm. Just put your own number in there, guys who are really into unpicking counter generations. The point being is it's a lot of generations of design onwards. So at this stage, you're comparing someone who's copied Asda Coke. Oh, look, there's there's two different shops and they've copied Asda's recipe of Coke. Asda is owned by Walmart, just for our American listeners. It's not anymore. Is it not? No, it's got bought by two British venture capitalists who got bank funding and God knows what. It's been bought out from under Walmart. Asda is not owned by Walmart for our American listeners. It was for about a decade, but I digress. I kind of don't care who copies the copy. And that's what we're talking about with 18xx later stage designs, right? Because this idea is being recycled over and over and over again, does the multiplication of an idea become a greater part of a culture or design tradition? Can I just ask another 18xx question? You've played 1835, I haven't, and it's one of the first generation copies, if you can call it a copy. What's the difference between 1830 and 1835? The primary difference is the same thing you'll have noticed in 1860, Joe. The fixed opening order of the companies and having to sell companies out before you can bring another set online. So, I don't know, the yellow and the black company have to sell before the red and the green company become available also i guess as a minor addendum joe 1835 was the first game to feature minor companies and and a national i should also mention that because it's of a you know national import no let's stop let's stop that. <laughs> 1835 designed by some german so the impression i get from the game is that it introduced new concepts to a foundation but are those concepts strong enough and bold enough to make the game meaningfully different yes and i think that's the point right i damn american rails because i just think well i'm playing chicago express with a little bit of mud on the tin whereas of 1835 the changes are big enough that the decision space and the way you have to think is drastically different Mm -hmm. jonathan friend of the podcast uh asked me this question i say jonathan friend of the podcast he's he's not friends with us just friends of the podcast. He asks, is originality more important than good design? Does that depend how you're engaging with the thing? Using our prior model, if you're at the bottom of that bottom-heavy pyramid, the only thing you appreciate is the design because you've got no idea whether it's original or not. You haven't had the breadth of experience. 
Whereas when you're later on, you experienced many designs and you're seeking that new thrill. Maybe you value originality over refinement. I think that's an audience thing. I really do. And obviously, I would take both given a choice. The golden artifact is both original and robust. I think it's deeply personal, isn't it? Surely. Yeah, but I was also looking at it in terms of train games, in terms of their history and their development. I know you're qualified biologist, Craig, turned professor of trains. How how do you see mutations in terms of, you know, that spark of an original idea provoking or providing evolution? So I think New England Railways fits on this, right? Mm, yeah, definitely. Well, that system has got the original ideas in it that were refined by Age of Steam. So is Age of Steam a lesser artifact for the fact that it's the latter and the robust one, but it adds nothing new in inverted commas? I'm sure that's not true for record, but you know, it doesn't add significant things new conceptually on top of the New England Railways type piece. I think Lancashire Railways may have come first. I would have to check my uh, big journal of historic notations. Why it's known as BGG. Because without that spark and idea, you wouldn't have got Age of Steam. Is this a false dichotomy or a philosophical problem? I'm not sure. I think they're both important commercially i suspect robust designs are probably more appealing to a publisher than original but broken designs heard it here first craig says new england railways is broken i'm winding you up i'm winding you up i'm winding you up i know what you really mean you mean rough around the edges we've had our share of broken games recently i don't want to play any more but damn it answer jonathan's question is originality more important than good design yes good that's answered. Let's move on. Now, let us consider the Cube Rail games as a family tree. If so, then Chicago Express is a branch upon it, and it's not a product of a vacuum, but rather the result of years of development work at Winsome Games. John Borrow's own designs, but influenced also by Hans Heidema's train games too. It's its own unique design, in which its DNA has gone on to influence the design of others since. So, I've got a little timeline here in front of me. So we've got Chicago Express 2007. Sorry, I'm taking the Queen titles rather than the original names from Winsome Games because they're the ones which are most widely available. And German Railways came out next in 2008. Now, German Railways completely changes how turn order works and how those actions are selected. And it's based on like a probability input. The game end conditions completely changed. And we've also got company abilities. So while you're laying new things on the foundation of Chicago Express, we've got quite large concepts which change the the feel of the game. Next up, in 2009, we've got Kansas Pacific and we've got American Rails. Kansas Pacific has an operating order which is fixed. A president acts for that company, which is very different from Chicago Express because in Chicago Express, anyone can act for a company as long as you have a single share in it. There's also a lot more presidential control over shares coming into play. You can defend your dilution with canny play, unlike Chicago Express, where anyone can put anything up and we've got the the events in which companies can close they can go west i, th- I thought you were going to sing then craig we're not going to no, no i haven't got the button today no. <laughs> or do i away from you sexy thing you sexy uh, no i don't ah, okay. <laughs> just to explain to audience craig has got a button in which he can press it and it will sing go west the version not by the the village people, but the other one. The better one. Pet Shop Boys. Pet Shop Boys, yeah. 
Which could be the basis for a whole new conversation, I guess, about musical tradition and different songs passed down the generations with different instrumentation and the socio-political background in which the songs are released under. What makes a good cover song? Anyway, it's very different. In fact, I would say that German Railways and Kansas Pacific feel like utterly, completely different games from Chicago Express. They make you approach the game in a completely different way. That's what I mean by meaningfully different, right? That's when something ceases to be strictly derivative with no additional value. It's me talking through that concept of the core loop and where something is sufficiently subverted to give me a different experience. Actually, when you were saying that, I've I've just remembered that German Railways doesn't actually have share dilution in it. Dividends are actually paid out equally when new connections are made, and there's a preferred dividend to the linking rail companies too. So that either undermines our working definition of the core loop, or is a great example of its uh, subversion. I'll let Oxford University be the judge. Or maybe some other university, if I can't manage Oxford. Now, how do you feel about Texas and Pacific? This is 2010 release uh, from John Bora, published by Winsome Games, so it never got a broader release. Intellectually, it added seemingly less to the mix than American Rails. It still had some interesting wrinkles with the ranching piece, but ultimately there were very, very minor wrinkles. Some of the things that American Rails added or tried to add. It felt more akin to playing an expansion for Chicago Express. Something I didn't realise until you floated it afterwards that maybe this thing was packaged to be a suitor for Queen Games. I'll credit Joe's ideas here because this was one of his ways of making sure his memes live on for future generations. <laughs> his his memetic... His mem- his mem- his mem- I'm not even going to try and say the word meme. His meme... <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I've been reduced to a meme. These are groundbreaking speculations here. I was wondering about Texas and Pacific because it strips back a lot from Chicago Express. There's some, some changes. We've got something similar. We've got the Go West mechanism where companies can close. But we have the Texas and Pacific opening, which is almost exactly the same sort of as the, the Warbush can, Cannonball. That's, that's the name of a particular locomotive and song. Quite a good song. The Warbush Railroad. So it's very similar to that. However, there's no terrain costs. And the develop action has been tweaked slightly. The Chicago Hex has kind of been stretched into this go-west kind of line to cross if a company wants to or if a company can, depending on the, the directors of that company. Yeah, it feels more like it's actually a boiling down of ideas or taking things out of Chicago Express. We don't have those industrial cities. But that's almost inverted though, isn't it? You have the ranches that start with a little ranch arrow on there and you take it off and claim it to activate revenue. Yeah, and that's personal revenue as well as company income. Mm. So the decisions around building into those ranches feels different, but maybe not dramatically. Maybe in the same way that in American Rails you have those reduction of city incomes. Like you said, the small wrinkle that makes a little bit of a difference. Where does that stand with you, Craig? Your extreme ire and disgust for American rails. How does that compare with Texas Pacific? Oh, you are such a shit. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know I have neither ire nor disgust. I liken it to this. If somebody writes a series of books in a universe they've created, say, J.R.R. Tolkien type, and they're writing things about elves in that universe, and they're, they're writing more about hobbits, and then they do a bit more about hobbits and Sauron, and then a bit more, and then they get bored because they die or whatever happened. That's a known thing. They've birthed this thing. They want to play with their ideas and see if they can build upon them to make the audience feel something. If someone next year released a book called The Duchy of the Jewellery, and they go on a long journey to some woods that are on fire and they have to get rid of the magic jewellery that makes people very angry and somewhat translucent. Not invisible, Joe. Translucent. (laughs) It's different, isn't it? You question the latter, you assume the former's going to happen as a nature of exploring one's own ideas. But does the exploration merit creation well here's the thing okay here's the counterpoint to that it depends if you are commercialized it right if i release the same book or books containing similar ideas similar packaging but with slight wrinkles year after year after year like a factory process then the audience is probably going to lose faith with you there's only so many copies of patchwork i'm going to buy before i realize it's a swizz did i say that out loud is that are the uve mafia going to be coming out to get me uh, it's pronounced uva Cool, in which case I've managed to mask his identity, so I'm safe <laughs> I'm safe from the agents of buttons, as they're known. The button men. <laughs> I'm joking, but it's that classic joke with a kernel of truth, where I have now tired of buying any more patchwork because I feel I own, A, the original patchwork, which has the most emotional weight for me, in terms of it's the one I played and went, wow, this is brilliant, because it was my first exposure to the ideas. It's that personal connection to the product there or more to point the consumption of it. And also, there's only so many times I want to play those ideas expressed slightly differently before you realise that you're throwing money into a pile of buttons and patches and you're not getting anything different back. I guess there's not always going to be an eureka moment, though. And games also develop through a history of these incremental changes. Sure, sure. But do those smaller experimental explorations, do they necessarily need to be commercial products? I mean, designers are doing this off their own bat anyway. They're exploring their ideas and in a playtest group, trying something slightly different and trying to work out if there's enough meat on the bone to warrant market uptake of the thing. Or do they want to add it to their catalogue of published work or do they feel it's just too close to what they've already done? There, We've already discussed this. I think there is something within us that respects that original creative spark. I don't know. That's why we look up to people. We admire people. But at the same time, I, I know that there is no really true original creation. Apart from the train rush. <laughs> Apart from the train rush. Let's get that clear. No, okay. And, well, look, well, and, well, okay. Go on. Oh, sorry. Well, unless you want to feed me another question. No, 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 you can say and. Do your and and then... Where was I going? And. Yeah, and... (laughs) And I suppose I'd say I am academically interested in these incremental developments. Not, Not for patchwork, but for train games. And Chicago Express, it is a perfect amalgamation of design elements which have been seen previously elsewhere. But fixed together, it makes what we call an original game. I am interested in American Rails and its changes. Same goes for Texas and Pacific, and maybe I would play Texas and Pacific if I wanted some variation every now and then. I'm interested, but I'm not excited by it. 
I guess to answer your question bluntly, no, not all of these games should be published. You're nothing if not blunt. That was a 25-minute exposition into the mind of Joe to say, I agree, Craig. (laughs) I, I wonder also if personal connections, like you said, throw up an unconscious bias in determining how we feel about iterations of a design. Uh, Does our entry point make a difference? How would we feel if we had played American Rails before Chicago Express? Maybe we'd still respect what we consider to be the better design, but maybe we'd also enjoy American Rails more than we do now. Maybe we use the historical record as a cudgel to beat the successor with, you know, and it just justifies us not bothering to explore a similar experience as deeply as we otherwise might. And I think that's okay. Like, I mean, maybe not the cudgel bit, but because I want to spend my time exploring wildly different experiences. Anyway, there might be actually a gap in our knowledge here. There might be further iterations that I'm not sure about, but I I haven't played every single game ever. So please, you know, when you're deciding who to give a free degree to, please don't, you know, criticise my gap of knowledge. I can't learn about absolutely everything. Lose on Rails came out in 2021, designed by Robin David. I mentioned him earlier as as the person who didn't credit any person in his creation of this game, but (laughs) But I've stopped yet, Joe. You may proceed. Okay. Have you have you thrown all your rotten tomatoes? I have. I've I've run out. Let's assume that there are no gaps in my knowledge whatsoever, and Texas and Pacific was the last kind of iteration of that Chicago Express. I'm sure it probably wasn't. I'm sure there's something else as well, but whatever. This is 11 years later. Robin David comes back and he says, I was inspired by this design tradition of cube rails, and he wanted to create something personal to him, setting it on Luzon. Joe, Joe, just a quick break here. Is this the kick the small designers episode? Is this the kick everybody who isn't John Bohr episode? Is this how we're going to try and curry favour with the man to get him on as a guest? <laughs> I think so. None of them are as good as you, John. <laughs> You're still the best in my mind. Oh. <laughs> if you call my name, it'll be like a little prayer, John. <laughs> we played this game, actually, a little while ago. It was during the Kickstarter campaign when we were going to decide if we are going to back it or not, essentially, because we're tight. Yeah, that's right. And I may as well just jump to the end and just say we decided not to back it because we felt that, like American Rails, it doesn't do anything to enhance the system uh, of which Chicago Express does so well. The action selection um, is through card drafting. And we've got some port bonuses which are based on how many towns you've connected on your way to the port. We've also got the variable company locations, but these are restricted to starred hexes. So some set locations, but the company could change between those. We've also got company abilities, which we didn't play with because they weren't fully developed at the time. But basically, this is not another German Railways or Kansas Pacific. It's another American Rails, really. What were your thoughts about the game? I'm going to have to make some conjecture here, or more to point, express a reaction. Damn you, Joe. Damn you, Joe. I was trying to remain upbeat and positive. No, with this title, it felt like the action selection 
was essentially the it was the only significant decision space area that changed for me and it was dragging it back towards things that exist quite frequently in the euro game space and things that exist in the euro game space i would say i find them repellent but they don't particularly interest me or more the point if i want to play a a top tier euro game then i'll go and play a top tier euro game that's built around the drafting mechanism entirely say ginkopolis as opposed to playing a rail game where the chicago express action selections just been subbed out with a another type so long story short Oh, wow, what a review. It's not a bad game. It's just the changes don't do anything to particularly interest me above and beyond Chicago Express. So I'm not going to pay for something that's going to sit on my shelf next to Chicago Express unless I'm going to become a patron of the arts and best win in the world. I'm not there. Reportedly, it was inspired by Veersin Das Volk, but it plays out like a marriage between the action cards in Pampas Railroads with the different strengths of actions, like in American Rails. This feels like it should be the defining mechanism of the game. I just wish that Robin David had pushed the idea just a little bit further. Just imagine a card-driven train game, trading off action points with events. I think that would have taken that spark of an idea and pushed it into something that we can call an original design. Chicago Express, I know there are people out there who've played hundreds of times. I've played it in the 20s, and I feel like there's still a lot more there. And that is why I'm not seeking slight variability. Uh, I'm kind of fading into a dot, dot, dot of looking into the sunset, and Chicago Express is there by my side. Hopefully, John Bohr will be up by your side next episode, Joe with the love letter you've written to Chicago <laughs> Express. And I'll be there defending the small designers, <laughs> influenced by the design tradition of Winsome Games. I wanted to actually add a pen, a little bit of a conclusion of my own, I guess. I say conclusion, a point. As I feel that you've unfairly written Amabel Holland out of existence in that 10-year gap where you claim to have no knowledge of train games whatsoever, <laughs> such as the Chicago Express-inspired Irish Gage. Well, we've already done a whole episode on Irish Gage. We don't need to repeat that one, do we? I'm not saying we do need to mention it, but what I would say is this about in terms of interest of titles. Now, I'm hoping Amabel will take me at my word here. I actually have more interest perversely, in playing game designs where I question if they're perhaps even on some level broken, like Trans-Siberian Railway, where it works as a game, but does it work as a game? Or the Sioux line, where you can have auction outcomes where you just put it all back in the box and shake it up again and put it back out on the table because this one ain't going to work. I actually have more interest in those as original designs than I do that builds safely on the foundations of something, turns a dial a tiny bit here, turns another dial a tiny bit there, and you have a smooth, playable game out the back that sadly offers me the same intellectual challenge as the thing it was based off. Have you finished with your little mini conclusion there? Yeah, stick it at the start. But who cares about us? Should the market decide? These games, will they find an audience? And maybe that's all that matters. I don't know. I don't know. Because actually you're now making me think of another point I wanted to make. I think it ties into this market deciding thing. There is in fact an environmental cost to making these games. You have to have them produced a certain minimum quantity in factories where it's affordable to do so. They're flown all over the place. If nothing else, they're wrapped in plastic. There is a discrete carbon cost to making these things. So is it morally wrong to make something that doesn't 
actually offer new experiences. Now, I know that's really lofty because everybody's got to make a living, but I was thinking about that when we were reflecting before the show. Like, the market can decide, sure, and then it ends up in a bargain basement somewhere, and maybe it ends up in the works for a fiver. I saw something earlier in the works for a fiver. If it all ends up in landfill, there is a loser. We are all collectively, as a society, losers if things are made which don't sell. And in my continuing love letter to to John, maybe the Winsome Games model is actually, maybe that is more morally correct. Limited copies, seeing which ideas catch on, what other companies feel like there is a broader audience, and maybe there'll be mistakes in that in the publication or whatever, misjudgments, but actually maybe those hundred copies of a game, I don't know, is that all you need? And to be fair, Luzon Rails and American Rails were both self-published, American Rails later getting wider publication, much like Queen picking up the Winsome games. I'm just looking in the round about something deserving to exist or not. If something is an adjacent experience in a new skin, or doesn't stretch your brain in a significantly different way, there is a cost. Are you saying that the production of unnecessary Cubrail games are directly causing global extinction? Yes. What has Tim Harrison done? <laughs> Why? Why? Yeah, I think that's probably enough. Did I kill the mood? Yeah, you did. <laughs> You've ruined the episode. Does your idea justify the cardboard it's printed on? That can be the red top for the episode. There you go. Oh, cringe. Well, I think every designer of the games that we've mentioned today needs to take a good hard look at themselves and <laughs> and ask themselves that question. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure all the people we've spoken about today are lovely people who don't deserve our... Uh, Abuse. <laughs> no. Well... I did say at the very beginning of this episode that maybe we would ask ourselves some questions and maybe some of these questions may not be able to be answered at all, but we're still going to answer them anyway. Should we go through the list of these games and just say whether they should exist or not? Yes. Let's start off with Chicago Express. You're better at it than me, so no on that basis. In reality, yes. Let's look at Texas and Pacific then next. I'm going to say no unless it's an expansion. Sure. Have a pass, Mr. B. I'll tie in Kansas Pacific and German Railways. And Irish Gage. Do you think they should exist? Yeah, they should exist. Should Luzon Rails exist? There's a big world of difference between I'm not interested in it and it shouldn't exist. Perversely, I think the action drafting is different enough from the Chicago Express piece is different enough that you could argue that it's an okay artifact to explore that idea. I think that's on the fence. That is, that's kind of, the ball is literally on the net and it could land either way there. I'm gonna say it's fine, just about. I'm gonna say no. 
and American Rails. No, no, just, just no. I honestly came away from that game feeling like I'd just played Chicago Express in a different skin suit. Just had a horrible flashback to Jamie and Craig's skin pyjamas then. There you go. That's possibly our worst episode ever. Maybe this episode doesn't deserve to exist, Joe. Think of all the servers and whatnot that were fired up to allow us to record over the interwebs. People should phone in and let us know. We don't actually have a public phone number, but Train Shuffling does. So call their number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> oh, 18, 18 Chesapeake. I'm going to say yes. I could start naming 100 games, couldn't I? Should we just slowly fade out through this bit? Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to the 1835. Train rush. No, stop. No. No. That's a yes for the record. You've been listening to the Train Rush. 1836 Junior. Just, I know that's getting a new print. Does get that out, deserve get out. to be printed? Stop. Stop. Yes, it does. It's a great game. It's a great game. You know I like it. Be quiet. <laughs> and that's the only thing that matters, is whether I like it. <laughs> what do you think of American Rails, David? I do. I tend to think it's a bit overrated. People make to have made too much of it, really. I think that's my opinion. I mean, it's not as bad as some people think as well. You know, there must be some way to condense everything we've said today into a single, concise image somehow. To preserve and reproduce our ideas for generations to come. I was going to put you on OnlyFans, Joe, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, I have zero fans. Okay. Nice. Well, you've already got a channel. Fantastic. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show... This is... Now, that's what you call totally original, not in any way cover tracks music. I hear your voice. That's right. It's like an Featuring the massive chart-topping number one. How do I ever, ever <laughs> Including 43 of the biggest train wreck smash hits, including a love letter to John Bourne. It's like the prayer, I'll take you there. It's like the dream to me. And the hottest hit remix of this steamy summer by DJCL. Get now, now on double album and cassette in record departments at selected branches of Walmart, Asda, and Quick Stop and This Please convenience stores. Now that's what you call totally original, not in any way cover tracks music. Out now. Yeehaw! If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com. Thank you for listening. Together, we will go our way. Together, we will leave someday. Together, your hand in my hand. Together, we will make our plans. Together, we will fly so high. Together, tell all our friends goodbye. Together, we will start life anew. Together, this is what we'll do. Life is peaceful there. In the open air. 
what we're gonna do. 